So as people in modern America, and, and maybe this is a human thing in general, that we love courtroom drama. It's something that, that is interesting, I think, to many, many people. You can think of TV show, shows like Law and, Order, Law and Order or The Good Wife. I know there are many, many other shows that deal with courthouse drama. Uh, there are uh, shows like Judge Judy, where you watch litigation on TV. Uh, we follow cases like O.J. Simpson or the recent trial of Derek Chauvin. And we are interested in these court cases, these, this courtroom drama. And really, in our text today from Hosea 2, we see a, a drama before us, a courtroom drama. But there's still a foreign element because it's a, a courtroom drama focusing on a trial for adultery. And of course, we don't live in a time or place where adultery is tried in the court of law. There might be divorce proceedings following adultery. But remember, at the, the time of the Old Testament, and even in certain places in the world today, adultery was treated as a capital offense. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, verse 9, it sentences or it says that those who commit adultery would be burned with fire. Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 to 24, talks about the punishment of stoning for those who commit adultery. And so adultery was taken extremely seriously in the ancient world. And so a, a trial for adultery would be a somber, sober event, because everyone knew what the outcome could be. And that's what we see as the image in verse 2 and 3. This adulterous bride is hauled into the court. She's put on trial for adultery. Her husband is the, the plaintiff, the, the wronged party. But then we see a prosecuting attorney. We see a judge, a jury, an officer who will carry out the sentence. But as you look more closely... And I was mentioning this in the introduction. This is not a human courtroom. This is not a human trial. That it is corporate Israel, the people of God that is being put on trial for spiritual adultery. That, that is what is represented by this bride, the nation of Israel. And then her children, individual Israelites, are being brought in as hostile witnesses against their nation to testify against the, the nation itself for its spiritual adultery. Plead with your mother. Plead with her, says the Lord. And then we see God presenting himself as the plaintiff, that he is the, the wrong party. But then it's interesting in the, the imagery that God then is also the, the prosecuting attorney. God is the judge. God is the juror. God is the official who will carry out the, the sentence from the trial. And it is the law of God, summarizing the, the book of Deuteronomy, especially as a background for Hosea, that is the foundation for the charges against Israel, bringing the covenant curses that are outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So that's the 
the framework of this passage in verses 2 and 3. But really, the, the trial begins in verse 4. That, that's where the, the court proceedings begin. Now, as you look at verse 4 going on in the text, if you are the type of person who, who writes in your Bible or, or takes notes, then you'll want to, to take your, your pen and circle the word therefore in verse 6, the word therefore in verse 9, and the word therefore in verse 14. The repetition of that word therefore is really how you get structure in this passage. That's the structure of the, the court proceedings because the therefores introduce these sentences of judgment coming from the Lord upon this adulterous bride, Israel. But each of the therefores is preceded by evidence from the prosecuting attorney against Israel being laid out. So, so again, looking at your Bible, if you're, if you're following this, the, the first section is evidence, verse 4 to 5, and then the therefore in verse 6, verse 6 and 7, have the sentence of judgment. Then you move to the second section, verse 8, so you have more evidence in verse 8. And then going to verse 9 through 13, you have the, the second sentence of judgment with the word therefore at the beginning. And then you have the third section, evidence, verse 13, followed by judgment, verse 14 to 15, with that third and final therefore. And so we'll walk back through that if you're trying to, to, to write that down or, or, or see this unfold. But, but again, it's evidence, judgment, evidence, judgment, evidence, judgment. That's the, the structure of this. And that's what we're going to look at, these three cycles of evidence and judgment. So let's begin then with this, this first cycle of evidence and judgment. And notice the evidence that is laid out in verse 4. The Lord says, Upon Israel's children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She conceived them, has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, and my flax, my oil, and my drink. And so there you see God, the, the prosecutor, bringing the evidence against corporate Israel. And it, and it begins with saying that, that the individual Israelites, uh, the children of Israel, are also held responsible like their nation. Um, and it, it's not just because of the circumstances of their birth, but he's saying that, that they have actually participated in the sin of the nation as a whole, that they are held guilty for their participation. And you say, well, what is the sin that this is talking about? What is, is it that Israel as a whole corporately and the children of, indiv of Israel individually are actually doing? And we see this as we go through the text. You'll see uh, the, the name of Baal mentioned in verse 13. And, and we know throughout the book of Hosea and reading the histories that it was the worship of the Canaanite god Baal, which was the, the perennial sin of the people of Israel at this time. Now, at first, then, you say, well, maybe that means that this is not relevant for us today because there are no temples of Baal in Garnet Valley that I know of, that that religion of the ancient world has basically died out. And so this is not an immediate temptation, but it would have been an enormous 
temptation for people at that time. And I think we forget this, that it, we, we don't understand fully why they would turn over and over again to the worship of another god. But for them, this is what their neighbors were doing. Their neighbors were all worshiping Baal, those in the land, uh, both their, their neighbors probably immediately within Israel, uh, but also many of the surrounding nations. Uh, this is where they would turn. And Baal was the, the god of fertility, the god of prosperity, that without Baal, according to the people of the time, the crops don't grow, you don't have any wealth, there's no wine, there's no food, there's no oil. Uh, it's an agricultural society, so that is essentially the heart of their economy, that, that in their view it would be like oil drying up in Saudi Arabia, that the economy falls apart without it, that that's the way it is without Baal for people in the ancient world. Without him, it all falls apart. And the, the worship of Baal uh, was also um, an immoral practice because the, in the theology of, of Baal worship, they thought that essentially the, the, the rain was this sexual act of Baal. The land was the, the goddess um, Anat, and, and that, that's what brought forth the pr productivity of the land. And so these, these shrines would be set up on the hilltops of Israel, and they would have cult prostitutes, and people would go into the cult prostitutes essentially reenacting the action of, of Baal and Anat, that then would, would they, they'd say that would lead the gods to then bring forth the fruit of the land, to bring forth the productivity, and, and then all of the economic wealth that came along with it. And so if you were an Israelite, if, you're, if your crops weren't growing, people would say, yeah, it's probably because you didn't go sacrifice to Baal. You, you haven't gone up to the mountaintop shrines, that's why. And so you would think, well, maybe that's true. Maybe this is where I need to go. And so during the economic prosperity of Jeroboam II that I mentioned, when everything was going great, they had tons of wealth, but they were also amassed and meshed in the worship of Baal, people were saying, you know, maybe this whole thing is true. Because, you know, I, I went and I sacrificed to Baal, and then now, look, I, my, I have an amazing harvest this year, so there's really something to this. I see the, the cause and effect here. And so as we see in verse 5, they began to attribute their prosperity to this pagan god. And that's what it says, that, they, that they're saying, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil, and my drink. So all the good things of life come from this God, not from the God of Israel. Now, I'm, I said earlier that we don't have the immediate pull of the worship of Baal in our society, this, this pull to spiritual adultery. But that doesn't mean that we don't have temptations to try to, to meld non-Christian beliefs into our understanding of our lives and the universe. And I think one example of this would be the way that even as Christians we talk about luck or fortune or karma or the universe, that these are essentially non-Christian concepts. And, and I often do it when I'm not thinking about it as well, that I'll say, you know, good luck on your performance, or it was really fortunate that we ran into each other. 
And it's essentially what the Israelites were saying, where they were saying, why is it that the crops are growing? Well, it's because of Baal. Isn't that wonderful? And we'll say, why is it that, that my crops are growing, that my life is, is going well? Well, it's because of fortune. It's because of luck. It's because the, the universe is bringing good things into my life, that, that we essentially abstract the good gifts of, of our lives away from the, the God of the Bible and attribute them to other sources, um, and essentially taking away the glory that is due to God. But of course, there are other ways that we practice spiritual adultery, and um, it can, we, we talk about this a lot in Life Explored, if you've done that course that we do here from time to time at Hope, focusing on this theme of idolatry, that it's saying, where do you look for life and security and hope and happiness? Are you looking to created things, people or things, or are you looking to the, the creator of all things? Because the Israelites said that we can have security, hope, happiness if we worship Baal at the hilltop shrines. And we say that we can have life, security, hope, happiness if we get married or if we have the right sexual partner or if we have enough money or success or the right promotion or if we're smart enough or pretty enough or if we have enough degrees or enough social standing, that, that we say that these are the things that will ultimately provide what we need in life. This is where we look for, for sustenance. And, and so we say with the people of Israel in verse 5 that I will go after these lovers, these things that are not God, to give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink, my promotion, my, my 401k, the things that will provide for me in life, the things that are most important, this is where I look. And so that's the, the evidence then in this first cycle from God, the prosecutor. But then look at the, the sentence that comes down from God, the, the judge, in verse 6. And this is that first therefore that I was talking about. He says, therefore, in light of this evidence, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And so this first sentence here is, is focused on this hedge that God said he's going to put around the people of Israel. And it, it is actually, we, we miss the, the mercy from the context of the ancient world because, as I said, in the ancient world, if it says this person is guilty of adultery, you would expect the, the sentence of death in that time and that place. But instead, that we see this, this discipline that, that Israel here is being treated almost as an as a animal, as a, as a domesticated beast by the Lord. He's saying he's going to put up fences, he's going to put up thorns, he's going to put up hedges that's going to direct them, that they're going to try to go after other lovers, they're going to try to go after other gods, but they're going to hit obstacles in their life that's going to prevent them. And then one way or another, these fences and these thorns and these hedges are going to drive them back to Yahweh, their Lord and their Maker. 
They will say, I will go, I will return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And this reminds me a, a lot of the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament in Luke 15. And you'll remember in that story that, that there was this son who took the inheritance early, left his father, went away to a, a foreign land, spent all of his wealth on a riotous living, on prostitutes, and then eventually it was all gone. And he thought, hey, it's going to turn out really well, but it didn't. And then he found himself feeding the pigs and looking at the food of the pigs and saying, you know, maybe it was better off in my father's house, that even the, the servants in my father's house have food to eat. And that's the image of the unfaithful bride here, that, that as God directs her, as he puts obstructions to the path that she's on, that it will drive her back. And, and that's what happened to Israel as well, that they had this great prosperity for a time during the reign of Jeroboam II, but then eventually famine came, pestilence came, earthquake came, they were invaded by Assyria, and then in 722 BC they were conquered by Assyria. And this, this hardship in their life showed them that, that, wait a second, now I'm going and trying to sacrifice to Baal, but it's not doing anything. The crops aren't growing. So what, where, where is he? Is he actually able to provide for me in any way? That the things that we think will provide for us aren't. And say, now I will return to the Lord. And that's what happens to us as well. That when we go after other gods, when we go after pleasure or addiction or sex or relationships or money or whatever it is that we think this is going to give us life, this is going to fill us up, this is what we need, that it, it goes well for a while. And we say, this is really making me happy. This is making me way more happy than those stuffy rules of trying to follow the Lord. But eventually it stops, that you hit the, the hedge, you hit the fence. And what the, the happiness and the fullness that you're going after doesn't deliver. And you say, these things aren't actually giving me what I thought they would. And then you have that moment of poverty of spiritual nakedness, spiritually ashamed before the Lord, saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. That's the, the beginning steps of repentance in our lives. And maybe that's even where some of you are today. Maybe some of you were raised in the church. You were, you were raised hearing the gospel, the Bible. You went off, followed other paths, other lovers, but then now you're saying, no, this is not delivering. Maybe there was something to the childhood religion. Maybe what my parents taught me actually has value. I'll go back to the Lord God of Israel. And so that's then this first cycle of evidence and, and judgment in our text. But now we're going to move to the second cycle of evidence and judgment. And so notice then this, this second presentation of evidence. So after that first judgment, we move to evidence again in verse 8. And God says that, that she did not know, Israel did not know, that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So God is saying that the, the adulterous bride here 
thought that the, their happiness, their security, their wealth, their prosperity was coming from, from Baal, from this pagan god. And all along, they failed to recognize the true source of their prosperity. That they had good things, they had food to eat, they had wine, they had bread, they had oil. Not because of Baal, but because of the gracious provision of God in their lives. But yet they didn't recognize the true source of the gifts that they enjoyed. And this reminds me of an image that uh, was used often by a, a well-known Christian apologist, uh, Cornelius Van Til. And uh, he, he talks about how one time he was on the regional rail in Philadelphia, and he saw a parent holding in a child. And while the parent was holding the child, the child slapped the parent in the face. And he was struck by the fact that that child only had the ability to, to slap the parent in the face because the parent was holding the child to begin with. And that's the image of us with God, that, that the only reason that we even are here to slap God in the face is because God is the one who is holding us and is sustaining us all along. And that's what God's saying. I'm the one who gave you these good gifts, but yet you are slapping me in the face, that you are committing spiritual adultery against me. And today, some of you even may think, I don't need God. My life is great. I have money in the bank. Things are going well. Maybe someday, if my life starts to go sideways, then I may need God. But what we're reminded of here then is that all along, even when your life is going well, it's ultimately from the Lord. Whether you recognize it or not, it is his gift. It's not from intelligence, because where do we get our intelligence? It's, it's not just from hard work, because who gives us opportunity and ability to work? It's, it's not ingenuity, because who gives us wisdom? And so it's what James says in, first J, in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so that's the, the evidence then in this second cycle. But again, we go from evidence to judgment in verse 9. Look at the second therefore announcing judgment. Verse 9, therefore, God says, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forced, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them. And so there's a lot in those verses in this second judgment. But you can see that the God is saying, all of these good gifts were from me, but I'm going to take them away. That's part of that hedge that we were talking about earlier. And then it says that, that There'll be this public shaming before her lovers uh, that, that reminds you in a way of the, the language of creation, that in the beginning of creation, 
that Adam and Eve were, were naked and not ashamed. But then after falling into sin, it says that they realized that they were naked. Eventually, God covered their shame. But it's saying that there's this, this sense of being exposed, being laid bare, but that no one can actually rescue them. They might look to the, the gods of the nations around them to cover that sense of spiritual nakedness, but nothing is there except the Lord. No one can rescue out of his hands. And the Lord says that he will end their festivals. He says, I will put an end to all their mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Because what they were doing was they were taking the, the festivals like Passover, the, the Feast of Booths that the Lord had appointed, even the weekly Sabbaths, and they were using the appointed feasts of the Lord to serve Baal. And maybe even feeling like, okay, we're still faithful Israelites because we're going through the motions, we're, we're observing the Sabbath, we're, we're still worshiping Yahweh. We're just worshiping Yahweh and Baal. We're kind of hedging our bets a little bit here. But he's saying that, that no, that, that's not an option, that I will put an end to this sacrifice. And I think that for us that's important to remember that that God is not pleased just because we go to church or because we're baptized or because we take the, the Lord's Supper, that, that if we are looking to other things for life and hope and happiness that aren't the Lord, uh, that going through the religious motions of the church do not alleviate guilt before the Lord, but going through religious motions without God at the center of our lives actually extenuates guilt before the Lord. And that, that's what, what God is saying here to Israel. This is that second evidence. But then this, uh, we, as we turn now from this judgment, the evidence and, and judgment, we go to this third and final cycle. So we go from evidence to judgment again. And look at the evidence, this final evidence before us in verse 13. So God says to Israel, that, that Israel adorned herself with uh, the ring and, and jewels and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And really, if you think about it, that's the essence of the charge here, that it, it's saying that they forgot Yahweh. That's the indictment against Israel. And that's essentially the source of all sin, is some variation of forgetting the Lord. That's why the call in Scripture over and over again is remember, remember, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. And so for us, as we consider our lives, have we forgotten the Lord? On a daily basis, what are we remembering? Are we remembering the faithfulness, the care of God, or are we looking elsewhere for joy and hope and, and prosperity and for life? And if so, then we are left with this, this third and final sentence of judgment in verse 14. The, the third and final therefore in our text. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so this here, with that final therefore, 
This is where you're thinking, okay, the final shoe is going to drop. This is where the final sentence is going to come. The ultimate rejection of Israel for their sin. But then suddenly the cloud parts. And that the, the final judgment here is not judgment at all. That the final sentence is actually a sentence of hope and promise to Israel. That, that he's, he's saying that, that he will again have compassion on Israel. And I love how one commentary put it. It said that, that Yahweh courts Israel in two senses. He takes Israel to court in the accusation of a crime, adultery. But as the passage unfolds, it is clear virtually from the outset that the actual purpose will be to court Israel in the sense of inviting her back to faithfulness after she is done in penance for her sin. And so I, I love that, that it's saying, you know, he's bringing them to court, the court of judgment. But then coming out of this court of judgment is he begins to court her and love and, and faithfulness. And the word of this courtship in verse 14 is he's going to allure her, which means to seduce or to, to romance, to entice, that he's going to again entice, allure, romance the people of Israel, that he's going to, to bring them back, that he's going to, to transform them from this adulterous bride of judgment to this faithful, pure, spotless bride to be presented before the, the bridegroom of the Lord. And the text says that the Lord will bring her back to the wilderness, which is this, this language of Israel coming out of Egypt. So it's saying it's a brand new start. We're going to go back to the beginning again. I'm going to bring you out of captivity, out of bondage, out of spiritual slavery. But this time, instead of the, the fiery mountain of Sinai and the, the sin of Israel with the golden calf before the Mount, of si Mount Sinai, that the, excuse me, the Lord himself speaking tenderly to his bride as he brings her back in, in gentleness and love. And it says also that the valley of Accor will be the door of hope. The Valley of Accor is, again, this, this image of Israel in their earlier history, coming out of Egypt, entering into the Promised Land. And what did they do immediately under Joshua? That they fell into sin, that Achan took spoil from Jericho and brought judgment on the house of Israel. And it turned this, this valley, it was a, this, this valley of trouble, of, of shame before the Lord. But God is saying, no, that that in this new exodus, this new redemption, this new salvation that you're going to enjoy, it's, it's not going to be the same story as before. That, that instead of a valley of trouble, you're going to have a valley of hope. This door of hope opened up for you. And of course, as we draw that to our, our meal today, we, we remember that Jesus Christ himself in his ministry in the book of John calls himself the door of the sheepfold. That Jesus Christ himself is the, the door of hope that we enter into. And as we pass through the door of hope that is the Lord Jesus Christ, then we see that, that, that he is the one who then goes before the courtroom of God. The ultimate courtroom drama in the scriptures is Jesus Christ himself on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, taking the judgment, uh, being stripped bare before the judgment of God in our place, and that Jesus does it to then present us, the, the, the unfaithful bride, the, 
those who turned away, to present us, the church, as the spotless bride, clothed in the righteousness of, of Christ, holy to the Lord with, with hope. And, and that when we come then to, that, to the final day of judgment, the, 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 jar, the bar of the justice of the Lord, we receive acquittal. We receive the door of hope, of, of life, because of what Jesus did for us. Now, if you're here and you've, you've never repented of your sins and, and trusted in the Lord, we encourage you to, to wait, um, not take this meal as people come forward. Um, and it's, it's not to exclude anyone, but to actually guard you against hypocrisy of going through the motions. What we were saying, that going through empty religious motions doesn't actually help. Uh, that, that it needs to be coming actually from the place of repentance, acknowledging ourselves to be the, the unfaithful bride who's been redeemed by our faithful bridegroom who allures us and brings us in and speaks tenderly to us. And also we, we encourage uh, young children who've not yet made a profession of faith to, to wait, uh, that we can acknowledge, recognize their faith when they take this for the first time. Uh, but for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church, a member of a Presbyterian church, but to be one who has repented, trusted in Jesus, has made that public by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, not blocked by the action of any church from, from taking this, this meal, but looking to Jesus, resting in him with the professing the, the faith that we hold together. And, and these are the, the words that you see on page 8 in your order of worship. Return there. We'll read the faith that we profess together. What do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now we'll come forward in um, no particular order. Come when you're ready. Now just be mindful of, of physical distancing and you're coming up and, and others around you. Uh, you take the cup, go back either that way. You can come around this way if you need to. Uh, and when we, we have the gluten-free there as well that, that looks like this. And then go, once you're back to your chair, once everybody is seated, uh, we'll take it together. Uh, and then there's a trash can in the back there by the table, hand sanitizer. You can throw away your cup afterward. Let's pray. Father, we, 
we are amazed at your holy and righteous character. Lord, we know that, that you really are a God of justice. And Lord, that the courtroom drama of this text is shocking to us in so many ways. That, that we hear this and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us squirm in our seats. Uh, Lord, your, your word is not uh, just the, what we would expect it to be so often. Um, but it's exactly what we need. And so, Father, as we, as we see ourselves as the, as the church, not my people who have become your people, that we know that, that we are still the, the covenant people of the Lord, but we fall into all the same traps as the Old Testament church of Israel, and that, that we fall into the, to the trap of sin and idolatry and, and turning away from you to other gods and we hear the, the, the sentence of, of judgment that you might hedge us in, Lord. You might um, take away some of our, our gifts that we might experience uh, hardship in this life in, in different ways. But we pray that it would always bring us back to you, Lord, and that we would see ultimately that, that you discipline the one that you love. And I, I pray for anyone today who's, who's feeling overwhelmed with guilt or shame, that they would hear the tender voice of the Lord Jesus, calling them out, uh, speaking to them in love. Lord, I pray that each one of us can know very personally and individually uh, your uh, alluring voice, that, that we are the bride, you are the bridegroom. And Lord, what we long for is the great marriage supper of the Lamb, what this meal here, the Lord's Supper, is even designed to point to, where we will dine with you when your church will be presented as the bride, but Lord, we know that we're not going to come in our own righteousness, our own works. We're not going to come in any kind of clothing that we got from this life and from the gods of this world. But we're going to come only and solely on the merit of Jesus, clothed in his perfect record in our place. Not pleading our own selves, but pleading Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that we can know his love, his passion for us, the passion of the Christ on the cross, pouring himself out for us to make us pure and spotless. Lord, we pray that you would use this meal again to encourage us, to strengthen us in this walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.